So the way we do these podcasts is we could get together and do a podcast per movie, but it's just logistically easier if you come over and we do several at a time. So in this case, we ended up doing an informal trilogy of what I like to call animal movies. (laughs) And this is the cat movie in that trilogy. For reasons we we will get to sort of eventually. We will. Um, The film in question is known as Hard Times for the sake of this podcast, but I always knew it as The Street Fighter. Yeah, now here's the thing. Um, The movie is an American movie and the title was Hard Times, but when it came to the UK, it was retitled The Street Fighter because I believe the powers that be thought that a movie about Charles Bronson as a bare-knuckle fighter in New Orleans in the 1920s could easily be confused with the Charles Dickens novel, Hard Times. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, whereas now, it's now hopelessly confused with what I think is a Jackie Chan movie called The Street Fighter. Well, there's also a video game. Well, so it's a silly retitling, I think we can agree that. We can, although Street Fighter looks a lot better on a poster than um, yeah. Hard Times, I think. Well, yes, if you're in a list of movies that you want Except to see... Except he never actually fights on a street. But he is, I think that is what you call... Bare knuckle boxes. Anyway, you call it bare knuckle boxing. Street so fighting is something. You're bare. right. You're right. It's a more appealing title, especially for its target audience. But in, just as a title, in pure essence, I think Hard Times is a, is a nicer title. Now, <clears throat> this is a Walter Hill film. It is. And well, the reason we did it. I mean, it's lucky that it's a Walter Hill film from your point of view. The reason we did it is because I wanted us to do a Charles Bronson film, and this seemed to be the most comfortable one to yeah. go with to start it's one of the few examples of a film that you chose that I've seen already. Yes, very unusual. Um, so Walter Hill, well, you said that was lucky for me that it's a Walter Hill film, as though I'm a huge Walter Hill fan. I kind of, when I was a kid, and he was just he was just starting his career as a director, I was a big Walter Hill fan because he had a very interesting trajectory and pedigree because he was a screenwriter on things like Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, which might be the first time... I'd heard of Walter Hill, where he adapted uh, a novel by Jim Thompson and did a really great job. It's a very good screenplay. I remember being a kid and get t- getting the bus downtown to see another Walter Hill movie called Hickey and Boggs, which is a violent kind of cop movie. It might be a private detective movie uh, with Robert Culp in it. And that, again, is a Walter Hill script. And so he was this up-and-coming, hot, young screenwriter. Uh, he would later go on to do things like he would do with his partner, David Geiler, business partner, writing partner. Uh, he would do the rewrite on Alien that got it into production with Ridley Scott. Matt's making a face. I have no idea what that's about. I don't like Alien. Well, that's an argument we can have another time, but the Mm. point is he was a very adroit screenwriter and quite a famous screenwriter. And as with some other screenwriters, especially of that generation, he used his increasing power as a screenwriter to get a gig as a director. Now, I had always thought that The Street Fighter... Hard Times, whatever you want to call it, was an original script by Walter Hill. And I was quite astonished when I saw the credits and saw that it had originally been a screenplay by two other guys and he had come in and done the rewrite on it, done the final draft. So I did a bit of research on this to to find out what the deal was. And the deal was that the producer of the movie uh, wanted to... This is great... Uh, on IMDb, the producer's buried way down and they've got the writer and director at the top, which I love. I've got to say, I love that. The fact that the writer's about 60 names above the producer is a good thing. However, in this case, the main producer on it was a guy called Lawrence Gordon that Walter Hill wanted to work with. What Lawrence Gordon had done is he had seen um, a newspaper article about bare-knuckle boxes, illegal 
uh, you can't really call it prize fighting because you you don't have a prize. You have bets. Uh, so these guys have illegal fights, street fights. Whatever. No, they're not really street fights. They're betting fights, bare knuckle boxing, illegal fighting. He, so Lawrence Gordon had wanted to do a sort of story jumping off from this fact based article, and two writers, Brian Gindoff and Bruce Henstel, whom I've done some research on, didn't did very little else. Uh, they co-wrote a script which was set in modern times. It would then it would have been in the nineteen seventies, I guess, and it would so it was supposed to be quite a hard-edged contemporary piece. What Walter Hill came along and did, and this completely changed it, was to make it a period piece set in the Depression and set in New Orleans. So yeah. all of these things were things that he brought. These were massive changes that he brought to it, and I think that he completely reinvented the movie. So I think in a sense, although these other writers deserve the credit for building the foundations, this is absolutely a movie written by Walter Hill. And I was really pleased to discover that... So, the essential characters in this movie are Charles Bronson as a mysterious loner <laughs> for a change. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's no denying that there's a, it's, it's a Western basically set in New Orleans. It's the same... Uh... Well, that's what Walter Hill said. He described... I'm going to read from what he said, because I think he described it as a Western... But it's the stranger coming to town, uh, yes. mysterious stranger with no yeah, past. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he described it quite beautifully. This is from a book called Backstory Number 4, Interviews with Screenwriters of the 1970s and 80s, edited by Patrick McGilligan. There's a series of these books, and if you're into screenwriting, they're just so cool. So I'm just looking for the... Yes, Larry, who's Lawrence Gordon, who's the producer, had a project set in San Pedro about street fighting, they do call it street fighting, for money. I suppose it's like street racing. Mm. He had developed a script from a newspaper article. It was contemporary and pretty rough stuff, very AIP, which is American International Pictures Exploitation Movies. I thought maybe if you did it more like a Western with a kind of mythopoetic hero, so that's exactly what Matt's saying here, it might take the edge off, give it a chance to come up market. Larry went with that, so he made it period, set it in New Orleans. So your comparison to a Western is really, really apt and shrewd. But also to move it to the Depression gives... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of Charles Bronson's... What's his bloody Cheney. name? Cheney. Um, it gives him more to fight for. If it was set modern day, um, there's exactly. not as big a shortage of jobs and there's not as big a shortage of money. Uh, there is, and there's also a welfare safety net, even at yeah. its worst in the United States, in the way that there wasn't at the time of the Great Depression when people... We're starving. Yeah. Uh, and so you're right. Setting the Great Depression m means that people had very few options and had a very tough life. So the whole street fighting thing, is it's very... There's much more reason for him to do it. It's much more... Um, you know, it's not just a, a lifestyle choice, <laughs> which it would be now. But also setting it in New Orleans makes it visually way more interesting it looks incredible I, I love it and it was shot at a time when they could still find bits of New Orleans that probably yes. did date back to the 20s and 30s <laughs> it hasn't been flooded since I mean, yeah well, that, well left again as with movies that we've talked about before it immortalises a period that's gone forever yes. in this case particularly gone forever because since they removed the mangroves New Orleans has become incredibly vulnerable to hurricanes and it was wiped out by a hurricane uh, to the extent that you 
could never find these locations again. So it's even just something as simple as the shucking stations uh, in the factory uh, for the. We're uh, talking about oyster shucking, where they yeah. take oysters out of the shells. Just the scale of the operation, but you know, not machine-led. It's all man-led. It's all manual labour. Yeah, and presumably that those locations hadn't changed. Since well, that's the, what I'm thinking yeah, is that this must still have been years. working that way. Yeah. Uh, even when the film was because it's a very seventy. It's a very cool location. I, I don't want to call it an oyster factory because factories are places where you make yeah. things, but it's a, a big industrial uh, environment where they get the oysters. And, yeah, and, and uh, it's full of... Anyway, it's a, Shocking. <laughs> it's a really cool place to have the climactic fight, which is what they do. But so, it also means that when you start, and as with most Westerns, I mean, let's stick with the Western motif here, it's a beautiful, lovely, quiet, peaceful opening which completely belies arrives, what's about to happen in about five minutes. On the train, yeah, he he just rides into town. You've got beautiful landscape. The the town looks lovely. You've got really nice music. I think the cinematography is Philip Lathrop. I was going to get to the music because the music is Barry Devore's on, who I really like. I I know him from a, his score for Dillinger, which right. is an interesting movie to set beside this because Walter Milius, who made Dillinger, and Walter sorry John Milius, who made Dillinger and Walter Hill, were very much contemporaries. They were involved with each other, and they were both on a very similar career path. They were both hot screenwriters who parlayed that into directing. And John Milius's first film, which is sort of the equivalent of this for him, also had a Barry Devore's on score. It's also set in the Great Depression. Right. Uh, and Devore's music is fabulous. And, he, and he's it's really one of the strengths of this. And it is photographed by Philip Lathrop. And it's edited by Roger Spotterswood, who's very interesting. Well, big man. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He would go on to... Sh- Direct Under Fire, write and direct Under Fire, I think, which is, I'll have to check the writing credit on that, but that was uh, his a great movie. Bond as well. He, I, think he, I think he did do a Bond, yeah. but uh, for my money, the other important, yeah, for purposes of this discussion, he was also co-wrote the script of 48 Hours, which is an important Walter Hill movie, <laughs> yeah. in that it was a huge hit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I've got Philip Lathrop, sorry, I've got uh, Roger Spottiswood right here. Let's have a quick check it. To check two things, check which Bond movie. I would did. assume it was Die Another Day. Uh, not Die Another Day, sorry, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, it was yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies. And the question is, did he also write the script for Under Fire, or was that Ron Shelton? So that's this is <laughs> this is a task I've set myself. Yeah. But which it's a great movie. That the reason I'm banging on about it is because it, it is a great if movie. If you're wrong, I won. Oh, if that's interesting, uh, it is. I was wrong on both counts. Roger Spottiswood. Yeah, sorry. Ron Shelton did write it based on uh, an earlier draft by Clayton Froman, by the look of things. But essentially, you owe me a tenner. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Five pounds at most. So, we, we aren't as I was saying, is you open with this very peaceful opening with um, this beautiful New Orleans scenery. My cat's coming to the gang flat. Oh, there she is. Did you think we picked that up? Look at the size of that thing. Fantastic. Um, um, yeah, so, so what Matt's describing is when Bronson's standing in the doorway of a boxcar of a train mm. which is slowly winding its way into the, the, um, the switching yards of a station in New Orleans and it's, all, it's just very quiet, it's very peaceful and then Early within morning. about five minutes we're into a fist fight and we're already into a fight scene and the, the film's savage I mean the, the fight sequences in this film are, um, they're very well staged it is very authentic looking and what Matt's referring to is that as soon as Charles Bronson arrives in town he goes looking for a fight in the sense that he's looking for a place where yeah. people are fighting for money. And that's where he meets James Coburn, who becomes his, his manager, <laughs> effectively his manager. Called Speed, I believe. Speedy. His name is, yeah, it was just down as Speed. So Cheney and Speed. 
and they're they're two of the three important. There's some bad guys, but the 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 third good guy, to use that term very loosely, is Strother Martin as Poe. <laughs> and when they went, to, I, I'd forgotten a lot about this movie. And when they went to go and enlist him, I thought, what's his part in this? And he's the Doctor. Yeah. They, they but need they a, never actually need. Well, they could use so easily need you know when the guys That's have a savage beating. It, it just seems odd that we never get to see him doctor. It's actually that's, now that you mention it, I never thought of that before. But that is a flaw in the script that Poe never has to do anything. Yeah. But what he does do is he's a wonderful character. God, yeah, I, I love really him. well played as well. Yeah, uh, it's said in that interview that I was just quoting that Strother Martin asked if he could do it like a Tennessee Williams character, which when you think about it, he is kind of that. Well, he, he's. He's in a tough corner because Coburn has decided to play loud, fast, uh, go with the name. I mean, he is just (laughs) quick-talking in your face. Bronson, silent, few words as possible. (laughs) He's got nowhere else to go. What's left over? Yeah, he's got to find some middle ground there to even be seen on screen, which is why, I mean, I've seen Walter Hill be quite uh, damning of uh, Jill... Ireland. Jill Ireland's performance. Jill Ireland was, was... Uh, Bronson's wife uh, yes. right up to the end actually and a fate accomplished for, for Walter Hill well yeah so what we're saying is that whenever there's a Charles Bronson movie he insisted that his wife was in it which you might think is just like really kind of narcissistic and nepotistic but on the other hand they appear to have genuinely been in love and the way you stay together in a relationship if you're in the movies is you, you you're on location together Virtually. so I think that's kind of I think that probably was part of it and that's an understandable thing. It's an interesting point, actually. They they were together till she died, and I mean they they did a lot of films together. I'm thinking there's probably I over think 10 or 12. that they made a decision that, you know, if you're away on location with lots of beautiful people, there's going to be affairs. So the best way of staying together is to work together, to do movies together. I don't know if that was their thinking, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Uh, but they do work well together, and I don't think I I don't think Walter Hill's fair on. Uh, Jill Island here. Well, I what I knew about this is that he said about the only condition that he had to meet for Bronson, like the only change he had to meet, is he had to invent a role for Jill Island. And I think, from what you're saying, it sounds like he resented that. Possibly, it's not a particularly well-written role. But it, and she, it's I think also, she does more with it than on, in the script. And I, it's also almost non-existent. So what happens is he meets her and walks her home, and then. They, you sort of kind of see them together a couple of times and they're having an affair and then they split up. It's about five scenes all told, very short well, scenes. My reading of it is that she's a prostitute. And well, he, I... when he walks her home, she's more surprised that he's not interested in coming in. And uh, each time they meet, it's never on the books. I thought... I did cross my mind that she might be a prostitute, but... Because she's got a customer later on toward the end. No, you see, I think, I think it's different from that. I think that she's looking for a sugar daddy. Okay. And at the end, she says she's got this guy that she likes better than Bronson. That's my cat, Jade, putting in a guest appearance. That she likes better than Bronson because he's steadier. And so, you know, she's looking for somebody who's going to be steady, settle down, you know, although there's absolutely the financial incentive. I don't think it's the same as the prostitutes. And there are prostitutes in this movie. There's a very strange scene where James Coburn goes to a brothel. And I was waiting for... A a plot reason for this because it's quite an expensive scene and there is no plot reason for it I, I, the only justification would be local colour because it's not even a, an exploitation scene because it's not explicit and there's no nudity or any sex because you cut from him talking to the women downstairs to a post-coital scene 
And it's not even a very good character scene, so it doesn't really add anything at all to the movie. Is it not just an example of how quickly he blows his earnings, or winnings, as it were? If it was, it didn't make that point to me, because the point that Matt's making is very pertinent, is that James Coburn wins a lot of money managing uh, Cheney, the Charles Bronson character, in these illegal fights, but he throws it away immediately on gambling, uh, which I registered very strongly. I, I assume that speed is a nickname, and I, I was I have always thought that speed is related to how quickly he loses things and how quickly he can blow money. It's the only name he's got, and he speaks very quickly and he does everything very quickly. And I just uh, uh, he's got he does have a really good girlfriend. I think it's Maggie Bly playing Gaylene Schoonover. She she's terrific and she adds a bit to it. But what I was sort of getting around to when I was mentioning Poe, played by Strother Martins. I was talking to a friend about Walter Hill just yesterday, and I, well, I didn't say to him, but I would have said if we continued talking, because he was a big fan of Walter Hill, and I sort of was a big fan, and I'm sort of now an, uh, an agnostic, I'm a reformed Walter Hill fan, uh, I'm a lapsed Walter Hill fan. It's okay to still like the early stuff. But what I was going to, the, the argument I was going to make is that Walter Hill can write action really well, fast-moving stuff, but he doesn't really write character, but in the case of Poe, he really does write character. And I think Cheney as well. I, I think it would be easy to look at Cheney as just being your normal Charles Bronson character, but it's really not. Well, the thing about Cheney is he's a character defined by absences because he doesn't... He, he says almost nothing. He's very taciturn. He's very withdrawn. He does take action in that he will fight and do violent stuff, but there's no sense of him otherwise as, as, as really much of a character in motion. I think you do get that with the scene with Jill Island when he takes her to breakfast. And that's they're in the cafe. Well, and that's a whole different side of him because up till then we've seen him eating gruel in a side street. You've seen him you know, taking the remains of someone else's meal off their plate in another place. This is the first time you've seen him. And he actually well, seems quite comfortable in that environment. Now, that, that was that little bit last bit was misleading because it sounds like he was stealing scraps to survive. <laughs> well, when he nicks an oyster off of No, what uh, happens Coburn's is he very table. cheekily sits down at, at James Coburn's table and steals some of his food while they're talking, while yeah. they're basically negotiating. But, but that's what we've seen him... I mean, yeah, that's in terms of uh, functioning within a public arena. That's, yeah. that's the first time Having we've seen him actually... Having external life. Yeah. Well, just to go further in that direction, there's so much to say here. So, so hold that thought. I just wanted to go back to Poe, <laughs> Strother Martin, uh, because so they hire this guy as their doctor as part of their team, which is, uh, you know, makes sense. But he's so he's beautifully defined this character. He said, he said, I'm not really a doctor. I've only had two years of medical school. He says, in the third year, yes. a small black cloud appeared on campus, and I left under it. And it's he, of course he's a dope addict. Yes. But it's beautifully done, and it's it's great characterization. It doesn't go anywhere, but it shows that Walter Hill is capable of these wonderful characters. It's a well delivered line, and it's another example of all the money that people are making off of uh, Cheney's fights. They're just spunking it either on uh, gambling, sex, or drugs. And <laughs> yeah, Cheney's the only one that's actually looking after his money. So these other three people just. They can't hang on to their money. Whereas Cheney's the one that's come to town poor. So what the hell happened before he yeah, came well, to town? He's a mysterious loner. And so there's a suggestion that he's coming from some kind of... Uh, he's leaving behind some kind of catastrophe. And there's some unfinished business back north. But I, I wanted to... On the subject of Poe still, he's got this great line later on where he says, somebody always, always shows, shows up, up with, with a gun. gun. It's great. <laughs> I wrote it down as well. Yeah, because he's so fed <laughs> up with this happening. And that leads to... A, 
I think the finest scene in the movie, certainly the scene that I remembered that stayed in my memory all these years, because they go down to sort of Cajun country and there's some music they're playing, which might be Zydeco music, which is, you know, Cajun kind of fiddle music. Uh, anyway, it's well realised by Barry DeVore's on, but they're out in the sticks. They have a fight, uh, a, you know, a fight for money and Cheney wins and the guy, refu the guy refuses to pay. So what they do is they eventually go and ambush him at the bar that he owns and Bronson shoots it up. Well, there's a couple of things to say about that. First of all, there's a revolver and he fires at least eight shots from it. And I remember you and I had this big discussion about Joker, the recent film, uh, with, um, looking blankly at you, tell me any of the people who appeared in that film. Joaquin Phoenix. Thank you. <laughs> so there's a scene where he fires a revolver and I said he's, he fired more than six times. You said there are revolvers. Yeah. That, but that have more than six bullets. Well, I think that must be true because it's not the sort of mistake that Walter Hill would make. <laughs> <laughs> well. Because he's sort of, a, you know, I wouldn't say he's a gun nut like John Milley's, but he would attend to such details. There are eight shotguns. So if it was eight shots fired, that's Let's doable. hope so. Because what happens is after they get their money back, Bronson then shoots up the bar that's owned by the guy who tried to rip them off. And I remember seeing this movie in the ABC Dover. And there's this big glowing neon jukebox playing a not very good song. And I was going, oh, shoot the jukebox, shoot the jukebox, shoot the jukebox. <laughs> and he does shoot the jukebox. And it's a really gratifying moment. And that's what movies are about, those kind of gratifying moments. That um, festival that you're talking about that they go to where they set up the, the fight. Yeah, this, it's like a country, it's sort of country fair kind of thing. I was watching that this time around thinking, God, life was easier then. Yeah, you've got basically the, the shittest afternoon imaginable now. Uh, where you've got, yeah, um, I'm trying to remember what I wrote down. You've got um, well, the, simpler times. So you've, the the gains are so simple. You've got people staring at pigs. Um, it is <laughs> like a interest. miniature country fair, and they they're making fresh seafood. And There's it just made me crave a simpler life. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm watching, you know, something where I'm not having to worry about films or anything else. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, a film is making me think that I could do without film. You think it's <laughs> some sort of rural idyll. Yeah, yeah but, but I then mean, you know that's where I'm headed anyway. But so. there's, there's some horrible aspects. There's a bear in a cage there. Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's a strange collection of things. Yeah. And I, I, when I watched it the first time around, I assumed that when they dicked them out the money, that Cheney would release the bear. I was hoping he would, because yeah. he's looking at the bear... And the bear is obviously suffering. I thought there was some point about him feeling for the bear. Yeah, well, I think he, he, he's caged as well. He's, yeah. he's the animal that's that, having to do the fighting. That's what I thought, thought it was. And, and the, there is a big fight later on, which is literally in a cage. Yeah. It's cage fighting, but not as we know it, because it's a huge cage. But maybe that was an intention, and then it was just way too expensive to do the thing with the bear, so they shot up the bar instead. <laughs> I thought you said bar. It was the big bar scene. It's supposed to be the bear scene. No, I'm sure that's not the case. Um, so what else can we say? So the trajectory of the movie is that it's a series of fights. I mean, that's the kind of movie it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a boxing movie. It's a series yeah. of, built around a series of fights. And what is... Sounds clever... like we're doing this in a, in a hurricane. <laughs> it should oh, be all right. Yeah. It's quite atmospheric. I like it. Well, we should, we should be doing one of the great wind movies of our time, like Hurricane, with this in the background. Mm -hmm. um, so what is quite good about... The, the, I thought very early on, after he, there's an early fight where Charles Bronson triumphs, and that's what gets Speed to you know, take him on and all the rest of it. And we know that he's a great fighter. 
But the, these movies stand or fall by the power of the bad guys, the adversaries. Yeah. So initially, he's pitted against this guy who, who they nickname Curly, but he's actually called Jim Henry. They nickname him Curly because he's completely bald, played by Robert Tessier. Robert Tessier, who is your go-to fight man for the 70s. Yeah, and he's a very tough nut, and beating him is a difficult proposition. But that happens maybe halfway, two-thirds of the way through the movie. So we know we're headed, because it's that kind of confrontational, yeah. athletic, sporting type movie, that there's got to be a final confrontation. So we know we're headed for a bigger fight. And that's rather well set up, because when the uh, the rich man who's who basically wants to have his hired fighter defeat Cheney. Well, after uh, his hired fighter, Jim Henry, the ball guy, Robert Tessie, is beaten, he's determined that he's not going to let, you know, let, let uh, Cheney triumph. So he gets another fighter down, I think, from Chicago. And that's a really well-handled sequence because the rich guy goes to the station to meet his new fighter. And he takes his old fighter with him. And he gets the old fighter to carry the new fighter's yes. bag, which he's not happy about. But that change in status... That's not what I do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The change in status is very well handled, and it builds up the new fighter extremely well. And the new fighter, I'm desperately trying to find out who the I don't actually know who it is. I don't think yeah. he's as impressive as Tezier on screen. I, I think they got the casting around the wrong way with those two. That is that is true, but he the guy is formidable, and he underplays it well. Yeah. And he's really good. But the thing about Tezier, he's such a... He's visually very striking. So you're right. If they'd gone in that direction, it would have built more naturally. But there is this brilliant bit in that final fight where the new fighter from Chicago is losing and losing and losing to Cheney after a very tough tussle. And the evil rich guy gives him these two metal rods to hold in his fists so that he can... Which is illegal because it means... Rolls you can, of quarters, isn't it? It's the equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the heavy metal cylinders, which mean you can punch really hard. And, and of course, that's you know, completely not on, even in illegal street fighting circles. And he hands the... He puts these on the ground in front of the his fighter, who's just collapsed the ground. And the fighter sweeps them aside. So he sticks by his principles, which I thought was a really nice character point. Well, again, at the end, uh, it's Stoddermartin, it's Poe, who tends to him uh, after the fight. They haven't even bothered bringing their own doctor. <laughs> at least Poe got to, got to minister yeah, to somebody. Finally gets to help someone out, even if it's only to quickly run away. But, but, uh, and the other thing I wanted to say, because we talked very briefly about Jill Iron, I thought she was very effective. I thought she had a great face, yeah. she looks really good, and she she does what little she's given, she handles it very effectively. She does. I, I do think Walter Hill was unfair on her, because there's about three or four interviews where he's dissed her. Yeah. And, and it pissed Bronson off as well at the well, time. Well, that makes sense, because she does... Uh, as well as anybody could with very scant material if he'd wanted her to do better he should have written a better part for her because yeah. she's obviously capable of playing one well this is the thing if you you're the director mate <laughs> if you if you didn't like the performance you should have said on the day well um, I, I think he just resented having her in there at all mm. um but, but another the, point I'd, I'd like to make on this is yes. that I'm, I'm trying to think how old I am. I think I'm 43, 44. Bronson was I can't 54 when he made this film. Well, they keep calling him the old man, right? He looks amazing. He's in really good shape. And in fact, <laughs> because these guys strip off to their waists, uh, I think he keeps a, a Bronson keeps a vest on all the time. But anyway, the point is you see their physique and he looks in better shape than any of these other fighters. Yeah. He's he, in great, but he always was in great shape from the days of the Great Escape. You know, 
he was right the way up to Death Wish 5. He was still, I mean, plastic surgery aside, he was still solid and he could still do the running and the Why on earth would he have plastic surgery? Because the whole thing about his face is it was craggy and seamed. Because when Jill Island died, he started going out with his young nurse and I think that... Oh, that's insane. ...started playing on him. Oh, you've seen Family of Cops, right? He, no, but I, I know it figures large in your, your iconography of Bronson. He, uh, yeah, he... You can see the surgery at play there. Well, well, we'll have to check that. But no, he's a very impressive. Like he's a physically like Burt Lancaster or something like that. He has a genuine physical presence, and when he has these fights, you can imagine that he's the dominant fighter. And we're looking at a, what a ninety-minute film, ninety-five-minute film here. And Bronson's lines, I would say, he's probably got maybe twenty lines yeah. in that in the he, whole film. He's a, he's the perfect action hero. I think part of the problem I found with Walter Hill later on is he was still writing these kind of roles, but he didn't have actors. Of Bronson's stature, mm. or who who had the ability to play these kind of minimalist existential loner type characters, but Bronson is great and he's very convincing. And as you say, he's fifty four, but he doesn't look it. And also, um, at the time, highest paid actor, he got about a million for this. I think I think yeah. he was one of the first actors to be paid a million, and yeah. this was pretty much most of the seventies. This happened. He, he uh, yeah raked it in. Yeah, and also that would have been most of the budget of this film. Well, yeah. Although it doesn't look it because no, no it uh, looks perfect because it's all <laughs> the advantage of setting a film in the depression is you don't need consents. Well, the, but you do need <laughs> convincing period locations, which Absolutely. they were lucky to find, and they they shot the hell out of them, and they were great. But Bronson, um, they keep you say he was fifty four, and they keep mocking him when it, the various that they foolishly mock him. These other fighters call him <laughs> the old man, but he does actually doesn't look that old. No. He looks quite young. Um, but we haven't touched on the most important scene in the whole movie. Yeah. yeah, the animal connection. <laughs> yeah, but just to get there by a roundabout route, there's a, a great film reviewer, a film critic called Pauline Kael. And what I want to just mention briefly, because we talked about a movie called Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. She was one of the few people to give Sheena at the time of day. And she actually thought that there was that it was a good, fun, action, fantasy movie. And she mentioned... That thing about Tanya Roberts, that, that strange pale blue eyes she had and how effective they could be. So Pauline Kael is a very interesting critic, very readable. And she, I believe it was her, who said this fantastic thing about Charles Bronson in Hard Times. She said, you take that guy, this, you know, this tough guy with a granite face, and you stick this cap on him that makes him look like a working man in the 20s. And, and she said that completely transforms him. It makes him this underdog, um, working class hero. Uh, and he's a perfect depression hero, and she's right about that. And the only thing that you need to do to improve on that is to have him walk back to the horrible uh, rented room where he lives, wearing that cap, carrying a kitten, Yes. which he does, and a bottle of milk, which he pours uh, out in a bowl for the kitten. It, it humanises him tremendously. And at the end of the film, uh, he gives this is, Throw the Martin... Oh, I wanted... Let me tell, <laughs> let me tell everybody about it. So I had forgotten the end of the movie. I remembered that it just... I, in my mind, I saw him getting on a freight train again like he had it at the beginning. It's not quite like that. After the climactic fight, our three good guys, which is Throw the Martin, the, uh, the bent doctor, the junkie doctor, um, Speed, the compulsive gambler and, and illegal fight manager, and Bronson is Cheney, the fighter. They drive him to the the uh, station the, the, not, it's not even the train station it's the switching yards where you'd hop on an a train illegally and get out of town so they drive him there into this dark freight yard and he says his farewells and at the last minute you just expect him to go away but instead he, 
he takes out a big wad of cash and he gives it to Poe and he says, and now up to this point, I've been thinking that the Cheney character and Charles Bronson are basically cat abusers because I thought he's leaving town. Like you saw him <laughs> when he left his flat for the big climactic fight, the little cat's mewing there and he closes yeah. the door, doesn't even say goodbye to the cat. And here he is leaving town. I thought he's just going to abandon his cat. And I thought, I'm going to have to seriously alter my view of this movie. But no, he takes out this big wad of cash. He's got winnings of about $10,000 at this point. He takes out a big wad of cash, hands it to Poe, and he says, you take care of the cat. And this is great. And then he gives some money to Speed, and he says, and you take care of Poe. It's lovely. <laughs> I thought it was really lovely. Uh, and although you couldn't choose a worse person to look after a cat or a worse person to look after a junkie than these two, like, you know. But, well... At least he tried. No, it's what I, I you know, maybe Poe will look after the cat, but I don't think Speed's very good at looking after people. I wonder if there's a, a correlation between Charles Bronson's performances and the number of lines he has as to the quality of the part. Because I'm just thinking, you've got Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in the West as well, which is over three hours, and he's only got, what, eight lines in the whole yes, film? Yes, but you, you see, one might fall into the trap of thinking that he's somebody who can't act. No, no, not at all. But, no, but no, because yeah. there are action movie stars who are very effective if you just give them almost no dialogue because it doesn't expose the fact that they can't act but he can act he's a yeah. terrific actor well but it's going to be interesting to see if you still feel that when we get Family to of some, Cops. some of the other films but, I can't line up <laughs> so what happens then is he gives them the money he gives them instructions you take care of the cat you take care of Poe and then he just walks off into darkness it's a great shot he just walks off into darkness and then they, the other guys Poe and Speed get in the car and, and Speed is talking about how they should go down to Florida. But the last line of the movie, which warms my heart, is, is Poe says, let's go get the cat. And it's <laughs> wonderful. I was so pleased that they did due diligence to the cat. I, I love this movie. And it stood up really well. I remembered the jukebox sequence, shooting a jukebox. I mean, that stuck in my head forever. Uh, I think it's a really good example of a low-budget movie. And uh, tremendously effective. And I... Probably Walt Hill's masterpiece. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe.